0: everybody this is Victoria your dog guru and today we're having another episode of coffee and canines the opportunity for you guys to send in your questions for me to answer live and really quickly this is where I'm going to thank you for writing in in the first place I'm really truly honored that anybody wants to be involved with this process and I'm grateful to your questions so keep them coming First question of the day, dog guru. I'm in the midst of deciding whether or not to spay my seven-month-old female dog, or perhaps letting her have a litter or two and experience motherhood. Are there any drawbacks to breeding her? My neighbor down the street has a male dog, and I could breed her to him. I've been told she won't be a fulfilled dog without having babies in her lifetime. Is this true? Signed, a confused dog mom in Orange County, California. Okay, so this is a great question for a lot of reasons. And as a result, I'm going to kind of dissect this question piece by piece. The first thing I want to tell you is no, your dog will not be less of a dog if it does not reproduce. That's a misnomer. It isn't true. So we can throw that out the window really quick. There's a few things you need to consider before you ever breed a dog. First of all, do you know what the breed standard is? Do you know temperamentally, genetically, health-wise what you're looking for. Because if the answer to any of those questions is no, or perhaps your dog has a behavior problem or a health concern you've dealt with on and off throughout her life, you could be breeding that into the puppies. And so I always say that, When it comes to breeding, leave it to card-carrying breeders. There is so much more to breeding than taking two pretty dogs and putting them together. There are inner mechanics and structural things that you have to consider. There are things that you would want to breed out of a line, and there are things that you want to keep intact. So with all that being said, and speaking generally, I don't recommend that an owner breed their dog for the sake of breeding the dog. If they don't have the history and haven't put in all the work, To develop a strong and healthy reproductive line, I I just don't recommend it. I mean, we have plenty of dogs that need homes as it is. And to me, that equates in some ways to backyard breeding. Now, this may not be somebody's intention, but I can tell you in my own neighborhood that there's somebody that's got a lab and they breed it to another lab because they're both pretty dogs so that they can have puppies. And of course they say things like, Oh, well, so many people have wanted puppies from my dog and that could be true. It could be true. But the problem is, is that what someone says they want and what someone actually wants can end up being very different things. You know, the people that you initially thought were going to take the dogs on as puppies perhaps didn't really mean it in the first place. And so you're starting a whole breeding program or a whole breeding based around essentially talk. And talk is cheap. I mean, you could say one day you want to drive a Maserati, but the reality is, is that you really don't have the money to keep it. <laughs> Another thing I see, and a huge problem within breeding, especially when you don't have experience in breeding, is not doing your OFA testing or your health testing on the parents, and they both need this testing done. In my opinion, a breeder is somewhat remiss in the responsibility to the breed if they don't go through this appropriate step. Because if you're really interested in making the breed the best it can be instead of just trying to turn a profit, then you're going to go through all the steps necessary to really ensure you're going to turn out a healthy litter or as best you can to answer your additional question of are there any drawbacks to breeding her? The answer I have for that is yes, there can be. It depends on the female. Some females are not adequate mothers. Some of them lose interest in the puppies. Some of them over-mother. I mean, there's a lot of biological things that go on and instinctual things that occur. You know, you might have the nicest female in the world and she could have a litter of puppies and all of a sudden she's neurotic and she's being aggressive towards other members of the family. And this is something that perhaps you didn't consider. Perhaps you haven't thought about. But much like the hormonal changes of a person, dogs go through that too. And especially if they're bred before the age of which that should ever occur, which in my opinion is two years. It, you know you really don't know what you're going to turn out and juvenile mothers are some of the biggest risks not only to puppies but also to the long-term sustainability of the breed you know when you think about it in terms of contribution adding to a litter of puppies into the world is not contributing it's not helping anybody what does help is if you're trying to better the breed enhance the breed really breed out characteristics we don't want enhance characteristics we do and this is all the way from structure to temperament, and most importantly, health. So there are a lot of different steps that a really good breeder will take, including screening owners rather than just handing them out to somebody they know. I gotta be honest, in a lot of cases, breeders will not give a dog to somebody they know. Not because they think less of that person, but because they know it wouldn't be the ideal home for the dog. I'm not saying that if you bred your dog to another dog, you couldn't turn out a great litter of puppies. That's actually not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you're running a risk because if you're not fully informed as to everything that goes into breeding, aside from the financials, I mean, far from the financials, you could be really doing a disservice to the dog and breed that you love. I know a lot of well-intentioned owners and often they have the best of intentions when it comes to breeding their dog to another dog. They think, you know, cute puppies, they'll have nice homes, but it doesn't always shake out that way. So it's it's better to just, in my opinion, go ahead and get her fixed. It's not going to make her less of a dog. If she's a larger breed, you might wait until she's a certain age. I don't know what breed she is. Um, but other than that, there isn't a drawback to letting her progress throughout life without puppies. I just, I'm just putting that, that out there. Okay. Next question is, today a trainer I hired brought over his dog to use in training mine, who's afraid of her own shadow. Within the first 20 minutes of the session, our dogs ended up fighting. My dog, while normally nervous, has never been in a fight before. I took her to the vet and we're treating the lacerations, but now I'm afraid to work with this trainer again. Is this normal? Any advice on what could have happened or what I should do? I'm really upset. Helena Forst of Duxbury, Massachusetts. Helena, I'm really sorry that this happened to you. I truly hurt for you and your dog, and not just because your dog was injured, but because they were subjected to something that could be quite emotionally detrimental. As far as what I think could have happened, well, there could be any number of things that occurred, to be honest with you. I don't know how well trained the trainer's dog was. I don't really know his, his or her methodology. I don't know enough to give you an honest, straightforward answer and opinion on what actually occurred because I wasn't there. And without video of it, I couldn't really tell you what the trigger was and who instigated what and by doing what. So I'm going to advise you based on what I do know. I know that when you're dealing with an anxiety case, until you've stabilized the dog's emotional profile that you're working with, you don't involve another dog, whether it were a stranger's dog or your own. To me, that's irresponsible. Now, like I said, I don't know this trainer. I don't know their background. I don't know their techniques or their methodology or what their reasoning was behind all of this. But just as another professional, if someone were telling me this story during a consult, I would immediately have... A certain level of aversion to that technique. The fact that your dog, you say, has, you know, been afraid her whole life and and is afraid of her own shadow, that's something that takes a long time to reverse. I don't know if this was your first session. I don't know if it's your most recent session. I, I don't know enough about what's going on, but I do know if the appropriate steps and protocols aren't in place that you're really inviting disaster by involving an extra dog because that dog is also going to contribute certain behaviors and mannerisms that your dog could be uncomfortable with and it could end up amplifying the problem instead of allowing for true rehabilitation. So for me, it would be a no-go. I mean, that's saying everything. Like I said, I, I don't know what the theory was behind involving their dog, or if this was your first rodeo with this trainer. But I always told owners, you have to follow your instincts. If something doesn't feel right to you, or perhaps you've gotten an incident between you that has caused you pause, that can be its own answer. You know, it's different from having kind of different opinions and perhaps they just have more experience in an area. But when it comes to an aggressive incident, that mark is there now. That dog and your dog never (laughs) may recover together against something like that. Perhaps one dog was trying to show dominance over another and that erupted in a fight. Perhaps your dog was emotionally triggered and felt super uncomfortable in their own environment and that triggered something. I mean, there's a lot of different triggers that could have escalated into a fight here. The other thing that gives me pause is Somebody who really knows how to handle anxiety is going to pick up on these signals before an actual fight were to occur. I mean, speaking generally, there's always like a lead up before a fight ensues. So if those behaviors weren't addressed In the right time, that's what's going to result in a dogfight. And it should have been something that was avoided altogether by somebody who at least saw it coming and stopped it, perhaps ended the session, put their dog away, you know, really just to keep everybody safe who was involved, including you guys. But if I had a trainer coming over and then ended up with a vet bill because of lacerations from the trainer's dog, I would immediately say this isn't for me. For whatever reason it occurred, that experience alone is going to slow the progress that my dog could have been making because now we've got a new issue, a new fear. And that's personally how I would feel. I mean, that would be really the end of it for me. And that's not to say that you are working with a bad trainer. He may or she may have just missed judged the dynamic and what was going on. But even if that's the case, I just don't think with your individual case and your individual dog, it's a good fit. And furthermore, I wouldn't get my dog re-engaged with training for a little while. Let her fully physically recover, because if she's in pain, that's going to not only affect her mental and emotional state, it's going to affect your likelihood to really fix and change things. So I just think that she needs to make a full recovery before you engage in any sort of training whatsoever going forward. And then once she has made a full recovery, kind of take her temperature, see how she's feeling, how she's reacting, and then search out a different trainer, somebody that might have a lot of experience with reading dog body language and specifically anxiety. So for you, that would be my advice. Our next question says, so I just got a puppy and her crate is much larger than she is. We don't have a divider, so we tied a divide within the crate to contain her to one side. I was told by several people that this could end in disaster. Is that true or are they just overreacting? Anonymous. In truth, it is a huge risk. Um, Dogs can hang themselves in their crates with a collar and any dog owner who thought that their dog wouldn't be the one to do it, unfortunately they can end up finding out the hard way that that's a real thing. To have any sort of line within a crate with a dog, to me, could be asking for a bigger disaster than you've ever thought possible. I mean, you would never wanna wake up the next morning and find your dog hung in the crate, and it can happen. So the first thing I would say is go ahead and get an actual divider. If for some reason the divider in your size crate isn't available, then it's time to actually get the crate the size that you need. When it comes to puppy ownership, there's such a thing as being responsible to the dog. You can't assume that a dog, just because it hasn't had a problem or hasn't shown anxiety within a crate, that it won't. Or perhaps just get frustrated and curious. And in those sorts of situations, you end up with a really sad story. One that could have been avoided. So... Going forward, my best piece of advice is go get the appropriate size crate with a divider included, something that can grow with your dog, but please, whatever you've got going on in there right now, I would just completely do away with because I would hate for you to write in later and tell me, well, I left it in there and the dog broke its neck. I mean, I, I, I'm not being dramatic or negative here. Those things can really happen, so make sure you've got the appropriate materials, and in the meantime, I just would make sure that you're removing the collar every time you put the dog in the crate, make sure there's no leash and be sure that you're not tying anything anywhere within the crate. If you don't have an actual divider, then leave the divider out of the mix until you have one, because that's still safer. It's not going to help with your training so much, but it's still safer than just rigging something up and hoping for the best. Our next question comes from Clarice Ashley in New York, and she says, Hey dog guru, my husband wants a scary dog and something to protect me when he's gone working graveyard shift at night. I would rather have an easygoing companion, but he says that won't be scary enough. We're at a stalemate on this, and I was hoping you could give me some information on what the pros and cons would be to adding a mean and scary dog to our household. Thanks so much. Love the show. Well, thank you for loving the show. I appreciate that. I also really like your question. So there's a lot of things that can go into the dynamics of a household. And when you're thinking about a dog that you want to protect you, I can tell you even a golden retriever is capable of doing that. It doesn't have to be a specific breed. As far as you know, categorizing a, a breed or an individual as a mean dog, I just really don't go there. I feel like, you know, if you're really wanting a companion dog and you're going to be the primary caregiver of this dog, that's really what matters. This is not to debunk what your husband is saying. um, But I will tell you in my experience, and there have been clients I've worked with who were afraid that if somebody broke in, the dog wouldn't do anything about it because it was an otherwise completely happy and relaxed dog. But context is really A large piece of what causes dogs to be protective. So you can have a service dog that has been vetted and essentially, I hate using this term, but bomb proof around other dogs, but given the right context, even that dog can aggress. So To put it into perspective, your dog knows the difference between you greeting someone at the door that you find acceptable and letting them in the home versus you're in bed or you're watching TV and the dog hears someone approach the property. They're going to know the difference. And if they don't see you getting up as you normally would and going through all the normal mannerisms that you normally would if you were greeting someone you expected coming by, then that's going to shift a lot of how your dog evaluates that situation. To support this theory, I'm going to give you a history on something that actually happened in my home when I lived in a not-so-nice part of town about like 10 years ago. So I have the nicest dogs And I've really, really worked to make sure that they're behaviorally sound, that they're happy, that they're fulfilled, that they like their job. You know, I'm always trying to keep a balance between not only them together, but as individuals. My now 17-year-old Australian Shepherd Pitbull mix is... Never, and I mean never, aggressive. I've used him to rehab dogs that showed a lot of characteristics of aggression or had ritualized aggression within their daily dynamics, and he has never, ever, ever reacted. But there was one night where uh, I went out, and when I returned home, I saw a wide-open front door, which was terrifying. I got to tell you, the things that ran through my head in that period of time included anything negative you could ever think of. I, I was really not concerned with if someone had stolen things from my house, but I really was worried about my dogs. Upon entering the house, though, there were two things that stood out to me immediately. First of all, the 17-year-old dog, at the time he was around 10 or so, he was sitting on the couch, you know, doors wide open, but he hasn't left the couch. And I found that interesting. And the next thing I noticed is not a single thing in the house had been taken. Now, If someone breaks into a house, it's clear that their intention is to either look for something or take something. In either case, we weren't missing anything and nothing had been taken. Furthermore, at the time, I had a young French bulldog, very easy to get along with dog, and she would have immediately gotten snatched up by anybody who knew anything about the breed or the value of the breed. So as a result, you know, I had to make a couple of assumptions. The first, he must have scared off the intruder. Um, You know, the older dog was kind of like the nanny dog to all of my other, dogs at the time. And so the fact that none of them were harmed, none of them were taken out of their, uh, crates or their safe spaces, I had to make an assumption that he must've scared them off despite the fact that there wasn't blood all over the place. And despite the fact that, I mean, by all intents and purposes, the dog looked fine. Clearly somebody had intentions to at least rob us and it never happened. So like I said, you know, it's all about context. If, if, you're not home or you are home. The dog is bonded to you. They're going to be protective of you. Now, this goes all the way down to the little dogs. So I don't think you need a quote, scary dog to make you feel safe at night. And in regards to your more specific comment about wanting a mean dog, I never recommend looking for a mean dog on purpose. The reason I say that is because what fits your lifestyle now, a decade from now when you still have the dog, may not at all be suitable. You know, people will perimeter train a dog and they can make them really aggressive towards, you know, incoming visitors that are unwelcome, Well, that's got a time and a place because, you know, say 10 years down the road, you've got two children and their friend's mom is dropping them off to play. Your dog could evaluate that the same way they would have an intruder because they haven't been prepped for that exact context before. So that's something to be thoughtful of, you know, like the, like I said, you know, the dog you have now and the life you may have a decade from now can be wildly different. And you certainly don't want to have to rehome your dog on something that could have been Headed off at the very, very beginning. So my advice is to go with a breed or a mix that you feel comfortable with, that you really feel will fit with your family 10 years down the road, five years down the road. So this way you're really prepping for the reality of this dog isn't going away in 10 minutes. I mean, he's going to have a whole life ahead of him. And so you want to make sure it's the right fit for your family instead of just the right fit right now. Okay, so our last question of the day comes from Greg Stillwater of Omaha, Nebraska, and he writes, Dog Guru, is there any breed you wouldn't work with? If so, what is it and why? If there isn't, have there ever been a case that you wouldn't take? Oh, wow. Okay, so yes, there are cases that I turned down, but not for the reasons that you would think. But before I go into that, let me answer your first question, which was, is there any breed I wouldn't work with? The answer to that is no. Um, I never turned a dog or a breed away simply because that was the breed. Uh, I think a lot of this comes back to my background and in my experience, there really isn't a breed that isn't worth working with. So that's just me as an individual. There are some trainers out there that they won't touch an entire breed category. So it largely is dependent on where their comfort zone is and what their experience is like. As far as there being any cases that I turned down or turned away. Yeah, there were. If I turned a case down, it was because I really didn't feel like the owners were invested in doing the work. So regardless of how much time I spent working with their dog or working with them with their dog, I just knew that the training wasn't going to be left intact. And that's not to say that the dog was not trainable, quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, But it does mean that for me, I knew how much involvement an owner was going to need to have and how much investment and patience they were going to need to have for it to work. I used to say, and you've heard me say this before, that I wasn't a miracle worker. I can't wave a magic wand and make everything better. I can set up a protocol and a process and a treatment plan and a rehabilitation goal, but without the owner equally invested in that process, it doesn't matter how much money you throw out the problem if you don't have that level of commitment. You know, consistency is key with dogs. And if I see that an owner is already waffling during, say, a consult, then I know that we're not getting anywhere long term. So while I wouldn't turn a dog away or a case down because of the breed or the aggression or the complexity of the anxiety that they were experiencing, if I were faced with an owner that was not invested like I was, and I understand, like, this was my passion, but If I didn't see that they were as interested in this process, then in all honesty, I mean, it would have been a waste of my time and it would have been a waste of their money. Some people aren't ready for change, or perhaps they thought that I could come in and just fix the problem. Perhaps their timeline wasn't realistic and they weren't willing to adjust expectations on how quickly this was going to turn around. So in those sorts of cases, I had to be honest with them. And I was always really kind about saying, this isn't a good fit. And let me tell you why. I didn't say that it was a hopeless situation that the dog couldn't possibly make an improvement. But what I would say is, while I would love to help you, I feel like we need to be on the same page on how this process is going to move forward. And if you really don't feel like, you know, practicing with your dog on a regular basis is possible to fit into your schedule or believe that I can fix this completely on my own without your reinforcement when I'm gone or when I return the dog to you, it's just not going to work. That's not my style of training. That's not going to give you the long-term result you're really hoping for. So when you've thought about it a little bit more, you can always call me back. I'm not going anywhere, but for now I'm going to have to say no. I'm sure that people were taken aback by that, to be honest with you, because often when you call somebody in to offer a service within your home or hire them for one specific purpose, you're really not expecting them to say no to you. And I didn't do it because I was on a power trip. I did it because I know how hard all of this is and what it takes to make a successful outcome possible. And if all the bells and whistles and pieces of the puzzle aren't in place, I'm not helping. They're not getting what they really are paying for. And while someone else may take them up on the money and not actually do them any long-term good, I was just, that's not how I structured my company, and it's not the sort of product that I would have wanted to sell. I'm not just selling you my time. I'm se- I'm selling you a process, a set of goals, a level of achievement, and really long-term, a toolbox that you can utilize without me present. And it will take you utilizing those tools for you to have a long-term recovery. And that's not just limited to aggression cases or anxiety-based cases, which I did focus in on a lot. This was also for basic obedience. You know, If you thought that you could show up to a class once a week, learn everything you needed and not do anything at home, the next week when you come to group class, I'm going to know you haven't worked with the dog. They're going to stand out like a sore thumb because any reinforcement on a consistent basis that a dog receives is reflected in the dog the next week. So, and, and that there are in many, many cases people who love their dogs, but they're really not in it to win it when it comes to training or rehabilitating behavior. And so in those cases, I would often turn them down. I would always give them time to think about it and leave the door open for them in case after, you know, reflecting on it a little bit, they go, okay, well, we really do need to take this seriously. Then I, the door was open. The phone lines were available to them and they could call me back and say, okay, we're ready to get down and dirty about this problem. We are get ready to practice, you know, cues with you and start installing a process in the home that will really lend itself to our ultimate goals so let's get this on the books and i have to tell you there were people that would call me sometimes as late as like six months down the road and they'd be like you know what this is what I want to do. I, it turns out that the way I was thinking about it or the way I had it, it, you know, conceptualized it in my head is a little unrealistic. And I see that what your point of practicing with the dog and reinforcing it, perhaps changing some of my daily habits or dynamics with the dog is really going to be relevant to changing and updating this process into something where the dog feels secure. And I feel like we're getting somewhere and really going to make headway. So I, you know, and that has happened. I I've had people approach me. I've also had people, who, you know, didn't perhaps hire me and they went with a different trainer or a different training style. And I often got those calls too. I mean, it really depends on what you experience and how you frame up the idea of training for it to be a good fit. And to any listeners right now that are looking for a trainer that'll really fit their home dynamic or perhaps, you know, help them achieve their goals through proper guidance. When you're looking around, make sure you feel secure in the process. Make sure you're ready to be invested and you have the time to commit to this process because it is exactly that. It is a process. It can't happen overnight. It can't happen in a bubble. It's going to take time and effort what i will tell you though is that if you invest that time now you're heading off behaviors you don't want later and you're also contributing to the dog's overall well-being throughout the duration of his life. And I say that because the leading cause of death in dogs right now is euthanasia. And it isn't just because people have to put their dogs down because their dog is ill. They sometimes have to put the dog down because it's aggressive. It's can't exist in a normal community environment. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that contribute to that high Rate of euthanasia. And then we have things like backyard breeders and people who are inexperienced breeding dog to dog, which I kind of talked about earlier. So, th- you know, with that in mind, you're going to want to make sure that you're doing more than just, you know, feeding the dog and letting it outside. You want to make sure that you're enhancing that dog's life, you're helping them channel that level of intelligence they have, and you're making them a little bit more user friendly, not only for you, but in public arenas. Thank you everybody for submitting your questions. And if you are listening and you have a question about your dog or perhaps something dog care related, please send it to me. You can email me at dog here for you at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. That always helps with our exposure. And then be sure to join us on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash dog guru podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. So you can find us there. We're now on several broadcasting platforms from iTunes to Spotify, Google play, a bunch of podcast apps. So if you're listening to us from wherever you're listening to us, we appreciate you doing so. And I look forward to hearing from you guys soon. That's all for me today, everybody. This has been Victoria, your dog guru. Namaste.